Welcome, everyone. You're listening to WMBR 88.1 Boston. I'm Esmira, and this is Break the Box His Stories. I am so excited to be joined today for our third episode of our second season with a dear mentor, um, friend, sister, beloved, and talented artist, um, Angela Counts. And as you know, if you've been following the series, we are focusing in on questions of spirituality, questions about what it is that makes us feel whole. And is there point in our creative practice where we begin to feel closer to that which drives our purpose beyond pain, beyond uncertainty and worry? Are there, is there value to points where we feel lost and just sitting in that in that and not forcing ourselves to try to feel or be anyone that we are not. So we're exploring larger questions around spirituality. What does it look like? Is it just one carbon copy or are there multiple ways to enter into a spiritual practice? And as you know, I'm currently the Africana Spirituality Advisor at the Multi-Faith Chaplaincy at Tufts. And so this question interests me for a lot of different reasons. And I thought, wow, what a neat way to just continue the conversation outside of the ivory tower and enter it into my everyday life. Because as Patricia Hill Collins tells us, the personal is political. And as Kimberly Crenshaw says, right, the intersecting forms of race, class, and gender are always at play in the pursuit of liberation and uh, liberation from domination. So without further ado, I introduce to you Angela Counts. Angela is an award-winning playwright and artist whose works have been presented in galleries, theaters, and other venues across the country, including New York Theater Workshop, La Mama Experimental Theater Company, New England Conservatory of Music, and Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Recent group exhibitions include Say Her Name, Watch Us Work at Leslie University's Van Der Noot Gallery, curated by Del Hamilton, and Stand Up, Women You Should Know, curated, curated by Sylvie Nassi at Boston's Kayafa's Gallery in 2017. Angela was a featured guest artist for Lee Mingue's Living Room Project at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, where she engaged with visitors in a presentation of her art and influences, including her Lorraine Hansberry award-winning play, Hetty Understands Anxiety. Angela's latest video works, Breakfast with Abu and Hijab Red Sea, explore the complex dynamic between the artist and her Muslim father, an American expat living in Saudi Arabia, which was also demonstrated and exhibited at the Cooper Gallery um, funded by the Harvard Hutchins Center for African American Research, which I had the privilege to attend. She's developing the project further into a series entitled My Muslim Daughter. She currently teaches courses and feature screenwriting, writing for the short subject, uh, at Emerson College in Boston and recently started working with Sundance Collaborative as a story consultant. As you can tell, Angela has her hands full of creativity, of abundance, of a lot of different ways to teach and to pass on the knowledge that she has bestowed, has, has, has learned. Um, Angela also is a double Trojan. Um, many of you know, I went to University of Southern California for undergrad and she was a big part of why I even thought that I could go to divinity school to be completely honest. Um, so I have to start with a story. I met Angela <laughs> my um, senior year at USC um, and she was then working as an admissions director for Harvard Divinity School and Lord knows, God knows, the ancestors knows that I needed to see someone who looked like me to even begin to think that I might have a space at somewhere like Harvard. Imposter syndrome was very, very real for me as a first generation college student, as a black woman. I grew up used to being told where I could be and where I couldn't be, where my place was and where it wasn't. Where it wasn't. And Harvard was no exception. So for me, 
seeing Angela at the uh, orientation program uh, at the USC Religious Center <laughs> was a huge gift. Um, later, I learned that she studied uh, writing at USC's in, in the MFA program. And I'm stumbling now because there's so many different ways and entry points to talk about <laughs> the impact that she's had on me. Um, but while at Harvard my first year, getting used to the cold, the culture shock, and just what it was like to live in Boston for someone like me who grew up around the water and around the beach and the ocean. Angela was a bright light. She um, was constantly making herself available to talk about whatever I felt was on my spirit whenever we would cross paths. And she even um, breathed, breathed life into the idea of creating a joy club. Um, she then would introduce me to my now best friend and best friend who came with me through the program, Saran Sadimi. Um, and it was her loving affirmation and listening ear that really got me through that first year. So um, I could go on for days and tell you more about what Angela has pioneered, not just at HDS, but beyond. But I will end with the Black Religion and Spirituality Conference was um, an idea, a conception that Angela was a part of. And it was something that I got to experience in 2016 and never had I seen a legion of black scholars engaging in questions of identity and wholeness and healing in a space that was surrounded by affirmation, by curiosity, intellectual stimulation. And so it is on the backs of her work and the work of folks who have come before that I had an entrance into into the field of theological studies, into questions of spirituality and of meaning making. So Angela, <laughs> thank wow. you. Wow, that is um, so, so generous of you, Asmira. Um, I have to say from my side of things, um, I told you the last time we talked, I said, um, you know, we have an age difference and I said, but you know, you and I are equals. I have so much to learn from you and I do learn from you all the time. Mm -hmm. And I even told you how much I admire you. And I even said, I even envy you a little. Oh, you know, I kind of admitted it. I said, man, you are doing so many wonderful things and uh, you. You, you really have a gift and a light. And, um, you know, and I think as I'm listening to you, and first of all, thank you so much for that very generous introduction Absolutely. that really warmed my heart and touched me um, and, and kind of framed some of the things I've done and made me feel like, oh, okay, I've done a few things and then and, and, and they've been purposeful, you know, because I sometimes lose sight of that. And, um, <laughs> and isn't that what we do? Sometimes we forget all that we've been doing. The people listening, I'm like, just take a moment to think about all that you've done. Yeah, you know? and all of us have that, you know. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, so, you know, I have to say how proud I am of you and of your, of our community, of your your colleagues, your friends, Saran, and, and, all, the, and all the rest. Anyone that knows you and knows your friends and your colleagues knows, you know, um, we have reason to be hopeful about mm -hmm. life uh, even though we're struggling in many ways right now, um, they're not just smart people out there, but they're people who are, are you know, doing the work on themselves, you know, mm -hmm. first and simultaneously, because not even taking time out. Sometimes we do take a time out, but I mean, right. not taking a wholesale, like I'm going to just check out and work on myself, right. but also at the wouldn't same time. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it? <laughs> have that privilege. You know, we're living full lives and everything's asking right. of us. So we don't always even have the time to step No, aside. we don't. Yeah, that's why even just a little retreat sometimes is just so nice. But, you know, I, I, I honor that, you know, and we do all need to do that for health reasons and, and joy reasons. You said the J word, joy. Um, but I, I, you know, I think about, you know, again, you and your colleagues who I'd like to say a shout out to if anyone's listening that hey, I know. I'm going to send this to Saran. <laughs> yeah, hi Saran. And I, you know, I, there's so many people that it's literally a community of friends and that's such a, there's no amount of money that can buy that in your life. So, mm. but back to this idea of, you know, that, you know, one is working on themselves and what life gives you, you know, because mm -hmm. 
we can be intentional and say, oh, I'd like to work on this or I'd like to make a change in society along these ways. Mm -hmm. And we could, we can, and in many ways we should. But also we learn that life has some, also has its own plans for us mm -hmm. and own, you know, circumstances that we didn't count on. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and this is true of around the planet, you know, to varying degrees, we're faced with unanticipated um, circumstances. Oh, and, and, you know, sometimes in all reality, sometimes people have to put their dreams on hold. Mm. We hope not for a lifetime, but, you know, uh, it, it sometimes is not practical. It's not mm. realistic. Mm. Oh, let's 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 dive in there. Yeah, <laughs> it may not be safe, so you have to. Uh, but it's a dance as well, you know. You do, you know, if it's possible mm -hmm. to come back into one's life fully or even somewhat fully, so that the reason you were placed on the planet can be realized. To mm -hmm. even if it can't be realized and actualized, one hundred percent is mm -hmm. a in progress and that it's a in a way it's almost like a clarification process that as mm -hmm. time goes on you know this has been my experience at least uh, I had I've had and I still have notions of who I am and what I think I should be doing mm -hmm. uh, right I was gonna say can you tell us what that means for you mm -hmm. like where did you experience yourself having the pause of the hiatus and what does it feel like to to step into who you are and to know what it is you should be doing because you're speaking to something I think a lot of us worry and wonder and, and, and have questions about of one, why am I here? How do I know what I'm supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. You know, and often it's, well, when you feel good, when it brings you, as you said, the J, the joy, then you know that your work is to cultivate your life such that you may be able to continue to feed and to cultivate and to nourish those things. But you also are pointing to the practicality of sometimes life is just hard and mm -hmm. it's, you're not able to constantly produce and create in the ways that you would hope. So right. what do you do there? I'm, I'm still, you know, answering that for myself. Um, but but as, as I've gone on longer, while I still have questions, I have, I have enough in the rear view to say, okay, <laughs> you know, this, this happened. And I, and as time goes on, I may even see those scenarios slightly different, but, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, truth be told, it, it doesn't necessarily answer the life we're in, in the present, you know, mm -hmm. it's always about the present. Um, and the past is, uh, is, is critical. We do need to look to the past for all kinds of reasons, historical ourselves and so on social justice and so on. Um, but again, it's that dance where we kind of have to always be balancing the present, like you still have some dreams and those dreams may persist, they may have evolved, mm -hmm. or they may be brand new. You know, mm -hmm. like I would never have thought fill in the blank, I'd want to do X, Y, Z. Right. And thus begins another path. I've had it happen multiple times in my life. Um, and I think partly because starting out as a young person in my generation uh i was a generation that came in the way wave of the you know black power movement and and mm -hmm. also you know this notion of young gifted and black and this idea that, yeah that you know if you studied hard uh you know you could uh have something in life you know in this country and this uh not that it was going to be easy and not that racism and all the isms had suddenly disappeared but but there was so much you know possibility at least mm, mm. uh but it was limiting in in one way at least where it was about the professions you know to be young gifted and black uh, at least the way i got it in my part of the country i was in detroit mm -hmm. was i picked up that it was about you know you're going to be a doctor you're going to be a lawyer mm. Engineer. That's kind of it. I mean, nobody said, oh, maybe you'll be a great teacher, you know, and my grandmother was a teacher and a great teacher and she later was an assistant principal. But that that was kind of seen as, oh, well, that's what black people have had to do historically, you know, through segregation, we had to teach our own. Let's do some other stuff now, you know. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about being a scientist even, maybe now it is for kids of color, but back then it was really like doctor 
if you can't do doctor, go for lawyer. Mm. <laughs> like, that's it, you know. Right. And, these particular traditional roles. That oh yeah, yeah. Limited to these things, and if you can't do these things, then your value is left at a question mark. No, I would, I would, I would maybe modify that to say teachers were valued, but it was a new day. So it was kind of like, if you're meant to be a teacher, you're called to be a teacher, you would still be respected. Um, I'm not saying we wouldn't get any respect. Okay. But it was kind of like, I felt like I was in a, a, a generation where they were like, let's think anew. What are the possibilities? Because at that time, the universities and colleges were just in the beginning of a generation, maybe right before mine, where they were letting us into these colleges and universities in bigger numbers. Mm. This was true of women in general, you know, not like white women. So it was true of white women, mm. and it was true of traditionally underrepresented, what they used to say, minorities, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I didn't know all that. I learned all that later, but I'm just saying. So I think part of it was the door was open, you know, metaphorically, or at least it was cracked a bit. Mm. And it was like, oh, so what are the possibilities? And since we weren't able to go to medical school in really great numbers, mm. at least uh, maybe say outside of the South, right? Where we maybe could go to an HBCU medical school or something like that. It was like, hey, you could be a doctor. Mm. And it was partly about financial security. It was about having a place in society of probably some power, I would imagine, was thought that you maybe had a bigger voice as a doctor, at least in your own community. Mm. Um, and it was a needed, it's needed to this day. We still need really, really good doctors. And obviously yeah. now more than ever, now that we know there's you know, all these you know disparities and all of that, and then the other was lawyer, you know, again, because our people and other people as well, historically found redress through the law, you know? So it was like, it was, you know, street politics, but also they were simultaneously trying to change these horrific laws. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, if you could go and be Thurgood Marshall, you know, that was like the, he was like the Holy Grail, you know, you're gonna, you know? So <laughs> what happened was, um, while there was the black arts movement and we've always even through our worst times have you know changed this entire society and really the world with the, the with the arts that we have created mm. and channeled when our- you say we you mean we as in people of african descent or black yes, people. right yes absolutely yeah and uh, black arts movement center us in history just real quick for folks black arts movement that yeah, that came after the Harlem Renaissance that came kind of in that way in the in the 60s going into the 70s yeah Mm. and um because you know it it, like all movements it it wasn't the first to have a movement of black arts but it had a different focus you know Mm. Mm. Uh, it, it was unapologetic and you know yeah and provocative and and liberating um as you know, the Holland Renaissance had those elements as well, but it also reflected its times, you know? Right. Nobody used the N word, I don't think. Maybe, well, a couple works did, but you know what I mean? You weren't right. out of, you know. Like the normative language wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, right, 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 exactly. Yeah. So, um, but I guess it was just ironic that no one said, oh, why don't you go into the arts? I don't know any of my classmates that were told that. I mean, people did because people are going to do what they're going to do. If you want to be an actor, you kind of know it in your soul. You want to be an actor, but, but no one was cultivating it. I was one of the last generations though, that had arts in the, in the public schools. Wow. Yeah, we did have um, all manner of, you know, music classes. We didn't have like abundance you know i think we had limited violins like for example we my elementary school they, they had only so many violins and i thought i wanted to play the violin my best friend was also angela she got you know one of the violins said, you can play the guitar so that's how i got interested in the guitar because that's what they had left oh uh, but we did have music and we put on concerts um I never studied theater though in school. I never studied theater, ironically, even though that's what I went into later. I was gonna say, at what point did you realize that theater was something worth 
that, that you wanted to study worth studying for you? I came to it really late and it, um, I think I told you, you know, prior to this conversation that I was in a graduate program at USC, um, the Masters of Professional Writing, which is an excellent program. Uh, and I was studying um, a, a range of things that I was focusing on novels. And so I was starting a novel that actually was going to be kind of this three generation novel that's part Detroit, part Atlanta, mm -hmm. three generations of black women in one family. And sometimes I think about maybe going back to it, but it's pretty daunting. So I wrote six chapters and I had this idea that I wasn't good at dialogue, mm -hmm. even though my teacher did not have a problem with my dialogue at all. This was my own insecurity. Mm -hmm. So I was you know, pretty logical. And I said, where do they do really good dialogue? I said, well, theater, you know, that's all they do is talk. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe sing, you know? Yeah. So I took a one act playwriting class at the School of Theater at USC. Mm. And I immediately fell in love with it. I wrote my first monologue. I'd never written a monologue. Mm. And it, it was the voice of a lot of our grandmothers. I can't say it was just my grandmother because it wasn't exactly her voice, mm. but it was probably the voice of a bunch of grandmothers pulled together. Mm. And that... Mm just thrilled me. Hmm. Um, so uh, I managed to reapply or to apply to school of theater and I was a fish out of water and it won't be, it wasn't the oh. last time I experienced that in my life. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. <laughs> how many fish out of water uh, are here listening? I'm like, that's how exactly how I felt when I came to grad school. <laughs> oh yeah, we have to commiserate. Then yeah, I didn't think of it that way. That, that That's how you felt. I, yeah, I had no religious studies background. I had no idea that I would be interested in religious studies. It hadn't yet formed in my mind, though I had been doing spoken word okay. and I had been a part of the, you know, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and the Saved by Grace Gospel Choir and, you oh, know, wow. through, but I never, and so my sensibilities focused on faith came through my spoken word. And it was a friend that I met through poetry that said, hey, you should look into this program that Harvard has. You might be into it. But I still had no idea like that, you know, I had a theater background and a social science psychology background. So I didn't think that, you know, that there was really a, a place for me here. Um, so that's part of why it meant so much to, to hear your story, to be honest. Like, wow, you have a theater background. Like, you know, wow, like you're into creative writing and you and you're here at the School of Divinity and you're making, you're a decision maker and you're an influencer. Like those are all things that were moving through me because the fish out of water is. is, is oh, I, I, I was saying, singing your song, I guess, when I said that, um, you know, I never knew that. I never knew that, um, you know what I didn't know, even though obviously I read your application, but I guess for you saying it, I didn't really make the connection that you felt like you didn't have the proper forethought and, and maybe, you know, path towards that. That's, I mean, I knew you didn't study at undergrad, but I didn't, but we had, we always had so many people that didn't necessarily study it, who felt that they were totally on their way to, you know, that kind of study next. Yeah. I and mean, I can see it now, like now it's one of those things where like in, in preparing my application, I began to realize this is the next step, but it still didn't, it didn't erase the feeling of like, oh my gosh, like I have these classmates who studied religious studies at, you know, at these different schools, like they've been doing this study. So while I knew, I knew it was the next step, I had meditated and prayed on it. And I was like, wow, God, I can see the connection. I still felt a little bit like, mm. <laughs> I understand now that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Just, yeah. just again, thinking about like, Sometimes I feel like we don't always know, we don't always know the limits of like how our imagination can limit what we actually can do, like the power of imagining, just knowing that possibilities are truly endless. Miracles happen every day and what we can imagine, we can, we can create and we can live inside. So like our imagination and feeding that is, is, is really, to me, a spiritual practice. And Jonathan O'Donohue has this talk about imagination as the path of spirit. And I just, I just continually oh, begin wow. to hear that when I think about, wow, when you look back, when you take a minute and you, Angela, you were the one, speaking of retreat that you brought up earlier, 
at the retreat that we we did with the diversity and explorations now you had us sit down and you asked us a few questions Mm -hmm. and they were questions about meaning and you say remember tap into the time when you first decided you wanted to study here Mm -hmm. what was it that got you excited about this and you said, look back and think about what you've done so far and what you want to continue to do. And I know because I have it written down in my journal. And I remember feeling so grateful for those questions. Because as I think about now, like, wow, the power of reflection, the power of looking back and seeing what perhaps you didn't see when you were in it. That's so powerful, because then you're able to begin to make connections that maybe something higher has known for a while (laughs) you know and it's just like wow like then I arrive at gratitude like thank you that I didn't always get what I said I wanted because Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have turned out to be this beautiful thing that it is now that's right amen that's all right yeah I love uh, at least when I've said something helpful it's harder if you hear like you told me and it's like oh I'm so sorry you know but 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 that happens too, but you know, it's good to hear, um, you know, I taught today and um, I had some questions that I posed my class from a previous class. So I was borrowing from my own previous lesson mm-hmm. and uh, it was so great to see that it worked again, that mm-hmm. I'm learning as a teacher because I'm, I'm newer to teaching than I was to administration. And I'm seeing as a teacher that when you create a space for that person to connect with themselves that is that's that's the that's the gold or the the platinum or whatever because and the second after that is connecting with their peers oh yeah yeah it's that to me is the the true purpose the transformative tapping into the transformative power of education Mm -hmm. mlk talks about it and he talks about how, you know, education is, it's, it's futile, I'm paraphrasing, if it's so, solely merely for an intellectual exercise. But what you just said, when you as a teacher create a space for students to connect to themselves, mm-hmm. that's, that is where they're, that is creating and activating self-knowledge that they're going to take with them anywhere they go. It's not just regurgitating, right? Bell Hooks talks about this, pushing yeah. back against the banking system of education where you regurgitate information to get the A because you know that's what you want the professor to hear. The professor wants you to say, but you don't actually consume and know and have a deep knowing and connect yourself to what you're learning. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a continuing journey, you know, and I think that's why I've always enjoyed working with students in the educational environment because it's reciprocal, you know, I end up being reminded for myself, even though I'm the one saying, oh, think about this and think about that. But the fact that I'm being asked to pause myself mm-hmm. and reflect on those questions. You know? mm, wow. Um, so you mentioned that you're new, well, you are newer to your teaching practice than you had been like in, administratively. You've held quite a few administrative roles and now in the right. past year, I believe you've been, you've transitioned into teaching. Right. Um, more more full-time or just teaching more, yeah more full-time yeah I'm not doing it full-time but two classes a semester which feels like full-time yeah and, um, um, and you know I had taught I taught two courses prior to this year one was a playwriting course at a college here in Boston and the other was TV writing at Emerson so I kind of saw teaching it's like hopefully every now and then I'll be able to take teach a class Okay. But I had never been fully immersed as a professor, you know, like always almost on call, you know, from my students, <laughs> you know, with office hours and emails constantly going back and forth and physically being on campus the one day a week of the two classes that I'm on campus. And they'll, you know, and also connected to a community of other faculty, you know. Yeah. So that's very different from, you know, kind of coming in. Uh, to teach and leaving, you know, which I still loved. I still found it very gratifying, but still a very different experience. Right, right. I imagine now you're connected to a community of educators. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. that is refining in, the, in your practice, would you say? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was very fast and steep learning curve. Yeah, but it's like, yeah. you can learn so much more when you can get immersed in something. Hmm. there's something to be said for the slow and steady too because sometimes as I said we do what we have to do like Mm -hmm. people that get a degree you know in six eight years or something even longer 
that's good, right? That's better that they said, hey, I can't, because of my circumstances, I can't go even part-time and finish in, you know, five years or whatever they help you to do because I can go three semesters. No, I literally have to take maybe one to two classes over many number of years. Mm. Um, but, but I will say, uh, on the other hand, if you have the luxury of immersing in something immersive, um, it can be a shot of water experience, which is also pretty tough. It's like throwing yourself in a deep end of the pool. Ooh, been like, all right, it's time to swim. It's time uh, to swim. I hope these feet don't fail me now. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but again, you're probably going to learn a lot faster, you know, maybe a little more traumatically in some ways, but right. right. But you will, you will not yeah. let yourself drown. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and can you tell me where you find, if you find any sense of spiritual um, happening, uh, how, how has teaching impacted or informed your own spirit Mm. Um, yeah well I I think teaching for me and it could also be this period of the world that we're living in right now all the different you know climate change and the you know (sighs) the entirety of the students time in school is more apparent to me Mm-hmm. You know, when I was teaching one class, I was very concerned about my class, you know, because I'm always concerned about students. But now I'm aware of some of them are transfers and they, they you know, so I know that's a thing because I have done admissions many, many mm-hmm. times. So I've never literally been inside the classroom with a transfer student, mm-hmm. but I know they have their own concerns in a shorter time frame. And, you know, you could feel sometimes their excitement slash anxiety Um, some of my students are, you know, freshmen, they don't seem like it. Some of them, I think they're junior and they're a freshman. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is I realize that they all have their lives. They are full folks. It's not about me. And, you know, I do want to be a good teacher, but I don't want to over, um, focus on, you know, am I a good teacher? I'm really, really humbled by, I'm in this almost like an experiment where I'm in this space with real people who change the nature of what we're doing. Like no two classes are the same. Mm. Wow. I like the way you put that an experiment. Yeah, it it is in the sense of they would have a different experience if it wasn't me inside that classroom and somebody else was with them and I had a different experience if it wasn't their cohort. Um, But it could be the, content is roughly the same Hmm. but nothing stays static so what I'm doing this year and a half because now I'm in my third semester is I'm working on myself as a teacher so I'm it's almost like I'm in boot camp and I'm in school and I'm in real time revising what I'm doing you know from class to class and sometimes within the actual class I'm in Hmm. and it can be um really really um Oh, I don't know the right word. It, 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 it's, I don't take it lightly. Let me put it that way. It is a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, yeah, it's responsibility, right? Yeah, there's the R word. It's a responsibility, right? And just because overall you feel like, oh, my class is going well, this is happening. But I often focus in on, you know, maybe one or two students that I'm going, wait a minute, am I reaching that student? What's going on with them? And so it is a lot, and uh, but I find that I love it. Wow, I love it, and yet it is hard. <laughs> yeah. It's what not, do you love about it? It it taps into everything that it's nat- natural to me. So <laughs> I I'm a left brain right brain person. So I I enjoy the conceptualizing and the strategizing and mm. um. I don't have a lot of time for all that. You know, I find like, I wish I had more time, you know, but I like all of that. But then when I go in the class, it's like theater. It's like, you know, the lights are up. The show has begun. 
And I immediately, no matter how much sleep I've had, no matter how prepared or not prepared, I would look, would want to be or any of those factors or what's going on in society or anything. It's like, boom, it's time. And it's a very natural place for me to be. Oh, wow. That just yeah. made me think about the, 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 the theater as classroom, the classroom as theater, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and just being in the moment because something that I imagined in my mind would go over a certain way may not, you know? Right. Uh, but it's interesting. I even have to commit to what I decided to teach because I'm, you know, I, I, I pivot a lot. And you, you probably saw that when I was, when you met me that, oh, if you need this, come on by my office. I could be much more flexible because for one, it was a lot more hours and, you know, you could kind of move things around a bit. No, you're in a class. It's an hour and 40 minutes. That's all you have. So <laughs> if I'm going, huh, are they get not are they getting it because they're incredibly smart, but it's like, is this resonating? Um, right. Is this, am I delivering it in the, in the way yeah. that the most legible? Do they, do I need yeah. less? Do I need more <laughs> context? Then I have to say, commit, commit, commit. You can reevaluate later, but if it's something big, don't suddenly depart from it and then just offer something you weren't prepared for. Right. Um, and so I'm learning, it's teaching me to trust myself and to look at the long term, uh, the long game versus always being that improv person. Mm -hmm. I have that to rely on, but now I'm trying to be the steady as she goes combined with being able to improv. Oh, wow. I need time to see, because a student may not love something in a class and two weeks later, they could have the aha moment. Right, right. So if I'm going, oh, oh, you didn't love that, or oh, how about this? How about that? It it becomes such a me uh, a mess, for lack of a better word, that it's hard for me to know, right? Mm -hmm. So this semester is kind of my steady as she goes, keeping it keeping it more chill, and then observing mm -hmm. myself time to think about it and also get some feedback, you know. Mm, wow. I'm going to wow. do a midterm, hopefully midterm evaluation and, you know, I'll get some feedback. Yeah. What I'm hearing is that what you love about teaching is directly tied to what you love about theater and that there's a marriage, there's a, there's a connect, there's, there's a point at which your practice in theater is being exercised in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And that's tied to the need to be present which is a spiritual mm -hmm. principle because life is happening right now. Edgar told, tells us about the power of now, right? It's happening right now in this moment. And in this moment, there is a myriad of possibilities. And then you're connecting us to the experiment of the classroom. Mm -hmm. You're the variable that informs and is also making decisions that will directly impact the students learning and how they're processing. Um, Absolutely. And we also have we can't forget that we have this pandemic, uh, racial pandemic, uh, the, the, the COVID pandemic, Oof, and, and more that is our lived experience. It is oh. not conceptual. It's not a backdrop like you have a scrim on a stage. It is actually our lived experience. Right. And it's almost like you do a bit of a pause when you go inside the classroom but at the same time you don't hmm. it never really fully uh becomes outside of the realm of what we're what we're doing hmm. you know students and myself included but the students for them to get to the class is something now um and one of the class each week is on zoom so it's not even the same two sorts of class even in that week Mm. So what we can do on Zoom, I can't do with them in person. I see. Right. And what we in person, I can't have with them on Zoom. Right. And I, you know, I've not been doing this for 10 years in a pandemic, thank God, where I know how to do that, you know, do that back and forth so that I know, ah, this is going to be perfect for Zoom. Mm. Have this or, or let me test it out because I want to tweak it. No, it's literally like, this is my lesson for the week. It just so happens that on the Tuesday, we're in Zoom. Just so happens on the Thursday, we're in person. And then more close to the time I go, oh, and I make a couple adjustments. Yeah. But I'm a perfectionist. So I kind of would be more like, 
I really would like to have this more, you know, thought through like the pedagogy and the, you know, I don't know, the, 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 like you said, the moment, the now moment, how does that come together in these spaces? Hmm. Like my students at one point today, I said, you know, do some writing on your own. And then, you know, if you can, because I don't want to pressure them, I said, you can pair up, but, you know, don't leave your seat, don't get close to anybody. I meant kind of sort of turn a little, but don't move your seat. And then immediately some of the students start moving their seats. And there's a rule that they're not supposed to move their seats. Oh. And I, you know, I forgot that rule but for less than 30 social distancing. And they were probably about the same distance, but maybe the difference was their body was extending into the space closer. That's and right. their faces were facing each other. So the idea of, you know, your breath and the particles, you're literally facing each other. Right. And so suddenly the light bulb went on my head and I said, oh, by the way, let's just sit facing forward and maybe you can talk to the person to your side. You know, we're not supposed to turn the chairs around. They're like, oh, okay. So there's all this stuff that has nothing to do with teaching the class that you also have students zooming in while I'm teaching the class. Right, right. So there's all these things, there's all these other factors that are at play. Yeah. And there's these the small decisions that you're making just to create yeah. the environment that yeah. will support them in their learning. And this reminds me of a study that came out that talked about how the, the hardest profession, <laughs> you know, it's not baseball to like strike perfect, you know, to like to, to bat perfectly or, you know, like even across country to build that stamina to run for miles. But it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's teaching the most, the most dynamic profession because teachers are constantly making millions of small decisions, like day-to-day sure. -day basis. And you're talking about that improv, that dance, yeah. being present. Yeah, and being, you know, a technical person, even if you're not. Right, right, right. I'm a teaching assistant for the Religion and Society in Nigeria class. And I mean, I was just a teaching fellow for Harvard's Graduate School of Education. And it was interesting, again, to see the type of the pedagogy, but also the support. I really loved that role last semester, because we had what's called pedagogical fellows. So they were kind of our tech support. So I would create the slides, they would kind of press next, and I would get to run the class. And, you know, based on the curriculum that had been created. And so that was really fun. And it got to be like freeing, because there was that tech support. But when you don't have it, you kind of there's a lot of um, things that can distract you from actually sitting with the content because you're just trying not to get frustrated about <laughs> turning on your share screen you know <laughs> yeah and then you know you know and then making sure that the students are physically that the the, the mac that's on the swivel that has a wires on it that you know if you swivel it the wrong way it's going to stop and you want to make sure that swivels so they can see what's on the screen and then also see their classmate. Right. Um, so, you know, but I'm learning, man, I'm getting there. Oh, wow. Too much time talking about all that. That's pretty boring. Well, I don't think, well, I don't know. I'd be slow to agree with you there because I feel like there's so, like there's so much in what you're saying with the metaphor of experimentation and teaching. And you said, the question was, how do you feel like teaching is informing your spirit? And you said that teaching is, um, it is reflecting a lot of what you love. And I said, how so? And then you went into the metaphor of experimentation, tying it to improvisation. Mm -hmm. And if improvisation isn't next to liberation because you gotta be present, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So let me, I'm like, there's a lot of value. I there. do want to say one thing because this is very real. There is fear, you know, there's real fear in some of these things, you know, when you're mm -hmm. trying to go in a place that, you know, there is a drop off of your own skill set, you know, mm. but that skill set is needed to, because if you're going to talk about theater, when the show comes on, you, you can't be like the actor stops and looks up while somebody fiddles with the light. Right, right. Kind of back right. at the audience, like, I'll get back to you in just a second. You see them up there fiddling with the light. And that's kind of how it is. So obviously, you want it to feel more, you know, like fluid so that your improv is flawless. Like, they don't know that it's a kind of broken down for a few Precisely. minutes. You would rather Precisely. that, right? Um, so there is some fear sometimes for me. Um, but that's where my spirit, I just want to be even more clear. That's where the spiritual has come in. Mm. Because I have to then, you know, kind of um, pray and 
let go and have faith and also say, hey, even if it looks a little raggedy, I still have to have faith that that's okay. That it's enough, right? Yeah, I don't have to be perfect. Come on. As long as I don't make the students feel that they have to worry about me, that's my goal. Ooh. So if I stay calm. I've noticed they, they're, they're calm. And how many of us get hung up on that uh, yeah. analysis paralysis or thinking that we need to be perfect to get started, right? I remember starting this podcast and thinking, <laughs> but it's not going to be the right way. And it's like, at some point you just realize what is the right way? There is no right, right. way You decide. You decide when you're ready, That's you know, right. and the risk that you're highlighting. There's a reason why a great entrepreneur named Mandela she her background is in education she was a teacher a preschool teacher okay. now she just made it she's been featured in forbes and she's a black woman who's democratizing the tech sphere by create she created this platform called founder gym where she gets founders of underrepresented backgrounds to learn about how to raise capital but she started in education and she did this TED talk about education and a lot of what you're saying about the risk, just mm -hmm. deciding what you did was enough, trusting your intention, letting go. This is tying in this notion of serial testimony that actually Anita okay. taught me. This idea that everything you need is inside of the room. Everything you okay. need to gain the information you need is inside the room and letting, letting that show itself to you as opposed to trying to... That's right. Yeah. And so maybe, I mean, I think as I think of the different phases of my life, that feels like a big part of this part of my life is, uh, you know, not, not needing to be the young, gifted and black kid, you know, who has to be seeing, you know, just an exceptional, you know, um, some kind of rare bird <laughs> that, that I never was, you know, I mean, I was just a person that, yes, I had certain skills that, you know, if, if I got a little educated on, I could get really good at them. Mm -hmm. But a lot, that could be true for many, many students if they had, you know, the right education that tapped into the way they learn best, they can be a rare bird too in what Ooh. they're you tap into the way you learn best. There is nothing you cannot learn or do. Right. I mean, look at look at nature. Nature is all about uniqueness. You know, mm. like the, the, when we look at species, I'm always astounded. I mean, obviously some have gone extinct, but I'm still astounded by how many of iterations mm. of everything. An owl. There's no one kind of owl. It's like what is that said owl and one the head goes all the way around one <laughs> left and right one's got this marking one's really little one's got really big eyes it was like wow wow <laughs> that, you know iterations upon iterations and so you know i see us like that we tend to think everybody needs to be you know to be metaphorical everybody needs to be, be a lily or everybody needs to be a rose or you know whatever whoever thinks the prettiest flower is and everybody and then the rest of the flowers like yeah sunflower eh, i don't know you know daisy eh, because right. yeah they're nice i like a little daisies in my yard but oh this is the, the creme de la creme plant but that's not the way nature works they work in cooperation Mm. And also they do sometimes kill each other, but cause that's the ecosystem. But I'm just saying it's still like balance and cooperation. Mm. All right. You would bring us to a cornerstone <laughs> principle as we're rounding out the hour. You said okay. the beautiful B word balance because in African cosmology, we know that right. And spirit and the spiritual principle that we believe that, you know, our ancestors, those who have come before to help us heed the path, learn where it is we must go and what nourishes us. They are committed and invested to restoring balance and harmony. And they do that through our relationship. And so orienting ourselves with the divine that can be manifested in nature is one of the primary yeah. <laughs> sort of ways and principles the mystics show us and tell us, but you're, oh my gosh, Angela, we just need <laughs> more time. Well, this, was so great. I mean, this was so helpful for me, you know, and um, like I said, I always learn a lot from you and um, likewise, likewise, you know, being in relation with you and as I said your your wonderful wonderful peers who are also friends of mine and um very dear to me you know so yeah. to have yeah. the opportunity is really wonderful oh my gosh I'm so great I'm very grateful for your time and I just will say that when you talked about um nature and looking at nature and how there's 
a variety. Like there is no one size fits all. There is no one version of an owl, of a rabbit, of a dog. You know, like we are not carbon copies. We are made unique. We are made in the image of the divine creator that has the grand design. You know, I, th- I thought about how the other day as I was laying down, I just looked up, I just looked at my palm, my hand, and I look closely and I wonder if you do, if you would do this too, or if anyone would do this, and then you look closely before you go to bed, you look at your hand and your skin, and it looks almost as if there are all of these, these perfect little triangles that make up the actual texture of Oh, skin. I never noticed that. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that? They're perfect triangles. You might be the perfect triangle iteration. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> species, perfect triangles. If you just look at the creases that make up your skin, they're all of these little triangles. Okay. Um, it's really it's it's amazing because I think about sacred geometry. And, ah, yeah. Um, and again, sacred geometry relating to nature and the divine sort of um, geometry that is within nature there's actually this circle i'm forgetting its name but it's like it's the earth circle no it's oh. um oh it's gonna come back to me <laughs> but <laughs> maybe to be continued to be continued that's exactly it that's exactly it. it's gonna come to me afterwards so that's okay send it to well, me <laughs> we will yeah i will um thank you so much again for your time you are blessing to us and uh to this this ecosystem that we have here so yeah we are as we all are (laughs) we're like oh my god right absolutely everybody right right but we're all in our own individual sometimes struggling journeys where you know we're we're still kind of figuring that out you know yes 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 so to the listeners Thank you for listening um, as we do our delicate dance of compassion, clarity, creativity, all tied back to matters of the spirit. You're listening to WMBR. This is Azmira, and thanks for listening to Break the Boxes Stories. Until next time. Mm-hmm.